Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So, I have the opportunity to speak for a short five minutes um, to try to portray some, just a modicum of what God is teaching us, some truth from God. Um, and first and foremost, I want to thank God for my salvation. Although it seems like, un, like not a popular moment or just like something terrifyingly wonderful, some sort of miracle, my salvation was cause for celebration in heaven for God. So I believe that's cause for celebration on earth. Second, um, I want to thank Pastor Kevin and Pastor Jerry for the opportunity to speak. I think it's a tremendous opportunity and a blessing for someone as young as I to get to know God in such a manner. Um, and I feel truly blessed. So let's pray. Father God, I just pray that you use my Use me as a vessel, Father God, that you speak through me, Father God. Cast off my crown, Father God, so that you may be glorified in these words and in your words, Father God. That the truth I speak be your truth, Father God. Not just now, but always, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible reads as follows. Therefore... Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The whole chapter, chapter 5 of James, um, I find very intriguing. It's this sort of, it starts off with this sort of like rebuking. James is rebuking these, what the Bible calls rich oppressors. Um, and he's... He, the whole, like the beginning of the chapter of chapter five, begins with a warning to the rich oppressors. Um, he denounces the actions of this of this of these people, um, of these wealthy individuals whose love of money has corrupted them towards hurting innocent people. In verse four, it says, "Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you." The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James was trying to encourage the Christians of that area, I believe, who were surrounded by this kind of hostility. No doubt they were persecuted physically and mentally for their faith. And it is very likely that they may have been or most certainly have witnessed the kind of oppression that the innocent persons had experienced, the unfair harm they received for the sake of greed. To those people, James teaches lessons of patience. He compares Christians to farmers in verse 7, waiting for crops. When you're a farmer, you have to, it's, it, like, it's faith. It's a matter of faith when you put your harvest out. You don't know if, what you, if your work's going to pull through, but you just believe that the work you put forth will come to fruition. He, Christians are compared to farmers in that respect. And then in the very last section, um, very last part um, of James, before it moves on to, the first, to first Peter, James talks about prayer. Especially here in this section, the lessons that he taught to the Christians then are more important and have extreme value to Christians today, to us now. Because at that point in the Bible is where 
James describes powerful and effective prayer. Prayer that produces miracles. The kind of prayer that makes the sick person well, the blind person to see, the lame person to walk again. It's the kind of prayer that we need in the church, the kind of prayer that we need in the streets of Inglewood, the kind that we need in our families and our friends and the leaders of our nation for the backslider and everything and anything in between. That's the kind of prayer that's discussed here. This is a critical moment for us. This is an important lesson that will have value. It has timeless value. So, are you ready? Because God has already told us the secret towards powerful and effective prayer. It says it right there in James chapter 5, verse 16. Let's read it. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Amen. Amen. That is us. That's us. We are righteous people. The reality is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's us as Christians. We're following God. We're practicing righteousness. We are a righteous people, which means our prayers are powerful and effective. They have meaning. They change lives. So I want us to believe in our prayers. It is, to a Christian, the most powerful resource that we have. When we pray, it is much more powerful than anything we could ever believe possible. I don't want our prayers to be last resorts in the moment when we can't think of anything else because God's power isn't a last resort. It is infinitely greater than our own power. It is something to be relied on in all moments of our lives. So leaving off, uh, I want to suggest three things that should come as a result of our effective and powerful prayer that we have because we are righteous people. First, pray passionately. Two years ago at youth convention, um, Pastor Fergie Ferguson, he said some words that stuck with me to this day. He said that when Pastor Sonny is praying at the altar, sometimes he has to shout just to stay awake. I want us to pray passionately because we have to believe that our prayer is going to make a difference. Our prayers are powerful and effective. Let's put passion into our prayers then. Let's believe that every word we're saying is valuable. That, that we have to shout to beat back our flesh so we don't, not, not a word gets hindered or changed. Second, we've been taught how to pray, so we should use that. Let's pray like the Lord's Prayer. And read the whole thing on your own time, but definitely, in short, it's, you have to pray for his will to pass, that we rely on him, that he forgives our sins, and that we can forgive those who've wronged us, our enemies. Pray that we can fight temptation and our flesh all in Jesus' mighty name. If you do that, you can't mess up. Your prayer will always be correct, because that's how God taught us how to pray. And finally, pray faithfully. And this is sort of like a C, section one of the prayer, where you're not always going to feel the passion. You're not always going to feel like your prayer is making a difference. Faith isn't always a feeling. Feelings are flighty. They fade and quicker than anything else. 
So that's why we need to pray faithfully, even if we can't feel it, to always believe that our prayer will make a difference. Right living in our actions and in our prayers will be the evidence and result of that faith. When we can't see the bigger picture, it's more important than ever to pray faithfully. My resignation is coming, and it'll be ascended. All right, thank you. Wow. Give the Lord praise, amen. That was outstanding. Hallelujah. Amen. And tell John the Baptist that disciples are being made, amen? Praise the Lord. We gotta, we gotta raise them up from somewhere. Disciples are being made. Hallelujah. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them up to John chapter 7, verse 8. I'm sorry, John chapter 4. John. I'm so, I'm so, Jonah, the book of Jonah. Amen. I'll tell you what's wrong with me. It was something. Diana came up earlier and she said, you know what, I'm, I'm telling you, women bring something to the plate, right? Or she said, they bring something to the table. I said, yeah, make mine carne asada and, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking about my, my growling stomach right now. Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, verse 7, and, uh, and rather than reading the entire verse, I'm just going to read uh, just a couple of words, four words in the middle of that verse. And I'll tell you about all the rest of them, but I, I want to read these words. It says here, God provided a worm. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that you would speak to us about this simple story that you would prepare our hearts to hear what you desire to say to us. Help us hear what Jonah did not hear. What Jonah had to experience time and time again because he simply did not hear your voice. Help us to hear your voice this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people say, Amen. 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 Jonah was the same man that was swallowed by the whale. You probably are familiar with the story of the guy that got swallowed up by a whale or fish or however you want to call it, God called him to deliver a message to the people of Nineveh. And uh, the message was simply for the people in that city to repent and to change their ways. Uh, otherwise, God was going to wipe them out completely, completely and totally uh, wipe this city out. But Jonah had issues with Nineveh. So he said to himself, Hmm, what if I don't go? What if I don't go? I don't like them anyway. You know? God is threatening to wipe them out. And he's thinking, you know, praise the Lord. Here's my opportunity. Jonah would be, he's, he's willing to do anything else but to go to Nineveh. He hated Nineveh. 
So it would be like, it would be like sending a sereno to the Norteños to say, hey, repent. God is going to wipe out all of Northern California. And he would think twice. He'd be like, uh, should I go? Right? If they never hear the message, they'll never repent. And you may know the story, he ran from God. He would prefer not to go and tell these people about the Lord than to tell them about the Lord knowing that God is gracious and kind and, and, and merciful. And so he decided to run from God. The Bible tells us that he took a ship going in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. So God sent a storm to Jonah to prevent him from escaping. And the storm was a wild and crazy storm. And when the crew of that ship that he was on discovered that this storm is happening because of this guy, and they found out the reason why they were, their lives were in jeopardy, they wanted to throw him overboard. And they did, eventually they did. They didn't necessarily want to, but my, why should we you know, die for you, man? You're running from God. They threw him overboard. He had to deal with that himself. And the story goes on. He was swallowed by this humongous fish. And as he sat in the fish's stomach for three days, he finally raised up a prayer to the Lord. Finally, Lord, I'm ready to obey you. Not because he had this radical change in his heart for the people of Nineveh. Not because all of a sudden now I love them the way you love them, God. He prayed to God and obeyed God and said, I'll go to Nineveh because I'm tired of sitting in this fish's stomach. Smelling like rotten ceviche and, and probably gurgling, you know. And so the Bible says that it vomited him out onto the shore. And he went to Nineveh and preached to the city of Nineveh. And his message to them was the shortest revival message ever preached. And here is his entire message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Let's pray. You know, and then he prayed and left. He took off. That's it. Because of his hatred for the people of the... See, there was no change of heart. He simply went through the motions and did what God was asking him to do. He offered no remedy to them. No remedy. Just, you know, it is going to be destroyed. This city is on the chopping block. So there was no explanation, no instruction. Forty more days and this place is going to be wiped out. 40 more days and this place is going to be toast. And he leaves. He simply delivered the message. Not the hope of the message. Just the punishment of the message. And it's most stripped down, skeleton version. That's all he said. And people probably are thinking, man, if only all preachers did the same thing. Man, why you got to keep going and keep talking, man? Just brother, just get to the point, you know. He got to the point with them. He just gave them the bare bones of what God wanted to say. Forty days and this city is gone. He didn't say by who or why or what is expected of people. 
just that judgment is around the corner. And after hearing this, this is, man, what an amazing story. After hearing this, the people of Nineveh proclaimed a fast. They heard those words, man, and those words shook them to the core. Those were supernatural words. Those words, and this is what's amazing about the Word of God. The Bible tells us that it is living and active, that we can trust it to do things that we're not able to do, that it goes out and it accomplishes for God things that God sends it to do. It pierces the heart. It makes judgments about where things are in our lives. It speaks to us in ways that people cannot get to us. Man, it just, it just does things to us on the inside. He preached the word, and after hearing this word, man, they proclaimed a fast. In fact, the king of, of Nineveh said this in chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. He says, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. All of us, we're going to wear sackcloth like, like potato sacks. Man, we're going to humble ourselves before the Lord. Let everyone call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, the king said, God may yet relent and with compassion turn his, from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Those words pierced his heart, changed his life. Those words that were probably spoken out of spite, that, that God is going to destroy this place. You only have 40 days. God is going to destroy this place. There, I did it, and he walks away. No heart for the people. So everybody fasted. Man and beast, the Bible says. Not only did they abstain from eating and, and drinking, they, they all wore sackcloth, man. Men and women, dogs and cats walking around with sackcloth. They humbled themselves. They humbled themselves. And when God saw their response, the Bible says that immediately he changed his mind. Changed his mind about this city. But in the meantime, Jonah had no idea that God was moved with compassion. He went to set up shop to watch the destruction. So he sat on a hillside outside the city and he waited for 40 days. What is God going to do? How is it going to happen? Will it be an earthquake? Will, it, will, will the ground open up and swallow them in? Will, will, it, will he rain down fire and, and brimstone? Will he send some monster or beast? Who knows? And he sat there watching and waiting. The Bible says he built a little shelter. And that God provided a vine to grow over his shelter. And overnight, that vine sprang up and provided shade for him. God also made it a little warmer and the sun to shine a little hotter. And here in verse four, chapter 4, uh, verse 7, the Bible says that God also provided a worm. I tell somebody, God provided a worm. And that worm devoured the vine. He even made the sun more hot. And, and, and scorching wind to begin to blow upon his life. And God elevated his misery. And the storm wasn't enough 
way back in the earlier parts of, the, of this book, and the fish wasn't enough to get to this man, and it wasn't enough just to preach to Nineveh. God expected something a whole lot more from Jonah, just like he might expect a whole lot more from you and me. What Jonah failed to understand is that God sent him to Nineveh not because Jonah loved Nineveh. God didn't send him to Nineveh because he loved Nineveh because Jonah, in reality, hated Nineveh. God sent Jonah to Nineveh because God loved Nineveh. It's not because you love Nineveh. I love them. And I want you to tell them that I love them. Tell them to repent. Tell them I have something better for them. But because of his hatred towards Nineveh, he wasn't willing to go. I believe that God sent Jonah to Nineveh in the same way he sends us to the places he sends us, the things that he calls us to do. I'm, I'm sure that we love our city, whatever city you belong to, but he doesn't send you to the city because you love it so much. He sends you to do the things that you do because he loves them. He loves your family. He loves your children. And he sends us because he loves them. It wasn't because of our overwhelming love for the city. And God says, wow, that, man, he loves that city a lot. Look at how much he loves it. You know what? I, I, I wasn't even thinking about that city, but because of his love, I'm going to send him over there. That's not how God worked. God loves the city. Jonah didn't care about the people God cared about. And that might be true of more people than just Jonah. So God sent the worm. That's pretty heavy. He sends the worm. No, you don't care about these? Let me send you a worm. <laughs> you ever received a worm <laughs> from God? And the vine that Jonah loved, he didn't love the city. He didn't love the people in the city, but the vine that he learned to love, the shelter that he learned to love, God says, let me show you what I'll do to the things that you love because sin is messing up the people that I love. That the people I love are suffering and crying out and they don't even realize that I'm here with grace and mercy to reach them. What are you doing? How are you spending your time? Man, you are a servant of the Most High God. I love those people. So let me do something to the things you love. The things that you are, you're cuddling up with under the, the shelter of this, of this vine. So God sends a worm. And the shade that he loved, the shelter that he loved, was eaten by the worm. Be, be careful with the things you love. I got to check Debbie all the time. You ain't no worms, all right? <laughs> I love you, but you know, you never know. <laughs> God raised up a worm to destroy the vine. The worm doesn't complain. The worm doesn't run from God, doesn't find any excuses not to eat the vine, not to fulfill God's purposes. Faithfully, the worm did exactly what God sent the worm to do. And overnight, the shade was gone. The shelter was gone. What God gave to Jonah, God took away. The thing he thought that he can rely on, God took away. The thing he, he learned to, 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 uh, to cherish, God took away. He sends the worm. Hello. Some people look for comfort in the vine. 
Some people, you know, uh, look for, for shade and, and shelter in the vine, but God sends worms. And it eats away every comfort, every gain, income, wealth, health, eaten away. What God miraculously provides, God can just as miraculously take away. This is a heavy story, man. The, the worm causes things to wither. The worm eats away at things. The worm causes things to waste away. God laid him at the root, unseen, undiscerned. There was, there was no, uh, uh, in his mind, there was no, he, he didn't see any danger coming, no, no problem, no, you know, there was no plan B. Here I am in the hot desert sun. Thank God for this vine. Praise God. God provided this thing. But he didn't see the worm began to destroy the entire vine, probably started at the root, ate a little bit of a, a, a way, and it withered up overnight. And every comfort that he expected to receive was lost. God provides the worm. The withering of the vine was, was a lot like the withering of the fig tree that Jesus cursed. Jesus cursed the fig tree because it pretended to be a fig tree looking like a fig tree. There's no fruit on you, man. You're just a tree. If there's no fruit in your life, you're just a tree. I, I came to you looking for something. I came to you hoping that you would do something for me and you have nothing for me. You're pretending to be a fig tree. Jesus went to that tree thinking that he could count on it. He raises up people expecting to count on them thinking that they would serve him, provide for him. And he goes looking, ain't nothing but leaves here. And you're looking like someone that I can use. And in people's minds, you're like someone that God can use. But there is nothing there, nothing there. God is showing Jonah what Jonah is like. This is what you're like. I sent you because I love these people. I sent you because I love Nineveh. And I don't want them to be lost. This is what you're like to me. There's nothing there. For those that run from God, some may have escaped the storm and the whale, but can you outrun the worm? Your vine will wither and you'll wonder why. Just when Jonah expected to be comforted and blessed, man, he was deeply disappointed. Praise God, man, it's starting to get hot. Thank God for this vine, the vine, where's the vine? And the hot scorching wind began to blow and the Bible says the sun was beating down on his head and, and to the point where he even wanted to die. This guy wanted to die. Verse, chapter four, verse eight. He said, man, it would be better for me to die than to live. In verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. But the Lord says, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? You're here worried about this plant. 
Should I not be concerned about those people? You didn't tend this plant. You didn't water this plant. You didn't make it grow. But I was patient with that city. I planted that city. I watered that city. I gave life to those people. I am concerned about the people there. God was patient with Jonah. For 40 days, God waited. 40 days allowing that vine to reach its maximum growth. I think that this might have happened on that 40th day. The day that he was, oh man, God is going to rain down fire. Oh, he's going to destroy this place. And he probably got his popcorn and everything, his pillow ready, just kind of laying there like, you know, like waiting, like expecting to see destruction. And the very day that Jonah expected to see that great city fall, it was his vine that failed. God sent the worm. The only kingdom that fell that day was Jonah's. Man, if, you, if, if you're sorry over this vine, how much more should I be sorry over this city? I have labored for this city. I love this city. So God said, you can be concerned about this vine and not my city. You, you, you can love this and, and not the people in this city. And he sends the vine. I wonder, or he sends the worm. I wonder this morning if there's something that God has called us to, if there's something that he's called us to that God is expecting us to fulfill. And we've fallen in love with, with vines and shelters and other things. And so God says, well, you know, you can, you can get with this, or you can get with that. Or you can get with this, or you can get with that. Or you can get, oh, wait a minute, that's, I'm sorry. Sometimes this, the Englewood version kind of trips you up a little bit. Do you care about the things God cares about? There's not a single person here who doesn't have a vine. All of us have things that we're concerned with. All of us have things that we love, people that we love, things that we don't want to lose, things that we cherish and love, things that only God has provided. It, it, we didn't build on our, on our own. We didn't create on our own things that comfort us, that bring us well-being. And we need to remember that God sends the eastern wind and the scorching sun. God didn't send an angel to cut down the vine. He could have. He didn't send a gardener or the owner of the land. Hey, what are you doing on my land? You know, and come out there and, and chop down the, the vine and, and, and remove uh, the, the, the shelter. He sent a worm, a worm, a tiny unseen worm, totally unexpected to eat away at the comfort, to eat away at the very thing he cherished, the only thing he had in that moment in his life. Jonah might have seen a farmer coming or the, or the owner of the land coming or even as a prophet, he might have even seen an angel coming. But you do not expect the worm. Something you don't expect. But I guarantee you, the worm is a servant of God. When we fail to fulfill what God has called us to do, and right when you think you can trust the shade of the vine, here he comes. 
And so for those that run from the call of God, you might escape the storm and the whale, but it's hard to outrun the worm. So let me offer you just a couple of suggestions this morning. Number one, don't trust the vine. Don't trust the vine. Don't trust that it'll always be there. And I don't know what it is for you, what that vine is for you, whatever that thing might be, the shelter, the uh, the comfort, the, the whatever it is that you cherish, whatever it is that you want to hold on to, whatever replaces what God has called you to do. Don't hold on it to it, don't hold on to it too tightly, because it may not be there forever. Don't trust the vine. It's a blessing. It may seem like the perfect spot for you, and, and, and uh, it may seem like God gave it to you, and so if God gave it to you, it, you know, it'll, it'll never be lost. Praise the Lord, you know. I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place, you know. This is perfect, right, until God sends the worm. The same God that provided the vine is the God that provides the worm. Don't think that every opportunity outside of God's will is worm-free. You might be surprised. Secondly, and lastly, discover God's call upon your life. Simply discover his call upon your life. What, what is calling like? And I tried to think of, of a way to explain what, what is that like? And I, and I began to think about a craftsman screwdriver. I think about a, a craftsman screw. You know, if, if you know anything about, about tools, Craftsman screwdriver, they come with a lifetime warranty. They're well made. They are perfect for the job. Perfect for the job. They have one every size for the exact specific kind of screw that you need to unscrew or to, or to, uh, to screw in. Perfect. They are, they are well built. And think about an owner of a house having a tool chest with craftsman screwdrivers but in the kitchen, he has a butter knife. And when it's time for him to use a tool to screw in that screw or, or remove a screw, rather than going to the screwdriver that is specifically made for a specific purpose, well-crafted, lifetime warranty, the owner of the house reaches for the butter knife and uses the butter knife something that is made for something totally different. Something that could say, well, I ain't called to do that. Why you, why you choose me? Why you re reach for him? Why don't you, why don't you reach for her? Or, or, you know, I'm not gonna do it because, you know, uh, or for whatever reason. But the owner may decide to use the butter knife instead of that well-crafted, lifetime warranty craftsman screwdriver. Why? We'll never know. That is one of the mysteries that we won't know until we see God face to face. There's just something about the butter knife that fulfills the task that the owner has for the butter knife. And only the butter knife knows, and only the owner of the butter knife knows what that is. Only the owner knows why he would reach for that rather than the screwdriver. Maybe it's convenience. I don't know. Maybe it's because he likes the butter knife. There's something about it. It's like, man, I just like that butter knife. I'm going to use it for everything. Man, I'm shaving and, you know, whatever it may be. 
Some of us here this morning are butter knives. And God has plenty of screwdrivers that he could use. Perfect for the job. But some of us are butter knives and God reaches for you. And we can't explain why. Why did, does God reach for the, for the butter knife? Man, there, there are screwdrivers and there's this and that and, and power drills and all these kinds of things. There is something in the heart of God that he decides, this is who I want to use. And there we are hiding behind the spoons, man. Hiding behind the forks. We may not look like the screwdriver, but God has reached for you. Don't run from God. Recognize his calling upon your life. Recognize that you can do things because God says that you could do things. If God in his mind reaches for you when he could have reached for something else, someone else, he could have just simply spoke to the king in Nineveh and said, hey king, you know, and gave him a dream, a terrifying dream. Repent, put sackcloth on everything so that I don't destroy this. But he didn't need Jonah. But he reached for Jonah for his purposes, God's purposes that we'll never know. He reaches it for us the same way. Recognize his calling upon your life, amen? God knows what he's doing. I want you to stand with me this morning. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. Father God, I pray this morning. Lord, as we read this story, we are often very familiar about what happens early on about the storm when he ran from you and about the fish and he was swallowed up. And even about the preaching to the city and the repentance of the city. But still, Lord God, sometimes we just don't, don't read further to see that his heart had not changed. That Jonah's problem was that he didn't love the people that you love. That, that ministry and what we're called to do as we join you in ministry, as we join you in mission is not sometimes because we necessarily love the people. We learn to love the people as we go out and get to know them, as we walk among them, as we fellowship with them. You don't call us because of our great love. You don't call us because we have earned a place to be selected. You don't call us because we're the shiniest and, and the the. the best suited for the job because we love the city so much that we're better suited than anybody else. You call us because you love the city and you simply ask us to fulfill what you desire to do because you love the city. And I pray, Father God, that as we learn to love what you love, that you would transform cities like Nineveh, that you would transform cities like that, Father God. Bring revival through simple 
people yielded to your purpose. Father God, I pray, make us into the tools that you can use. Use us. Let us not run from the calling. Let us not turn our backs on the calling. But I pray, Father God, that your special call would fall upon us, that we be moved from deep within to serve you, Father God. Call back the worm, Father God. Call back the worm that devours, my God. Call back whatever it is, my God, that brings the disappointment of not fulfilling the calling upon our lives. Let us do all that you've asked us to do with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people say, amen, amen. Will you stand? Oh, you're standing. Amen. If God has spoken to you, and maybe this morning you say, you know what? Man, there's things I know I have yet to accomplish. There are things that God wants me to do. He's called me to do. God, all I need is for you to reach out and take me. Reach out and use me, Lord God. Take me, use me, my God, in your kingdom. Use me, Father God, to do what you've called me. Anoint me. Provide the, the anointing, the power, the ability, the, the wisdom, Father God. Give me the words that I, I don't, I don't have the words, Father God. I don't have the ability, the capacity, everything I need, Father. You must provide, Father God. Oh God, I pray your anointing upon my life. Use me, my God. Let me be, Father, your, your choice, my God, to serve you. Let me be your choice to send to Nineveh, to send to Inglewood, to send to Lenox, my God, to our surrounding cities, Father God. Let me be what you reach for, who you reach for, who you use, who you raise up, Father God. I pray, Father God, let me not be fruitless, Father God. Oh, let me not trust in the vine, Father God but let me trust in you, Lord. Use my life. Use my life. I don't want to run from you, Father God. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Lord.